I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. I always love the fact that you let me lick your eardrums at least one hour or more a week. So thank you. Um, Today we have a pretty cool guest. All right. So for over a decade, he's worked in the field of counter narcotics, organized crime investigation and public safety in the northern border region of Mexico. During this period, he also has coordinated and worked executive protection details of high-level government officials and visiting dignitaries, often in some of the most dangerous parts of the country. He is a non-permissive environment specialist and a writer uh, with operational experience along the Mexican-American border. Uh, An awesome guest to have, Ed Calderon. Thanks for coming on the show, buddy. How are you? Great, great. Uh, thank you for inviting me on, man. Uh, you know, I've read some of your books, so it's pretty, it's pretty kind of surreal to be here, man. Thank you. Yeah, cool, man. I appreciate you reading. It's kind of a, it, when it's the higher level guys that are out teaching, living and breathing this stuff each day that, that have read it and whether you get something from it or not, I'm always appreciative. It's pretty cool. To, to me, it, to me, it was a window into, uh, you know, a group of skill sets that I've thought about as far as how they would be somewhere else because a lot of the stuff that's in that book are things that we kind of picked up by seeing it by learning it from weirdos that would come and train us it was kind of surreal seeing uh, your book on the uh, your book uh, on the uh, on the shelf i was walking through an airport uh, opened it saw a few things in there interesting that it was in an airport you know with the subject matter in it <laughs> and uh recognized some of the stuff that i saw in your book as you know uh, not just military trade craft or, you know, spy trade craft, but it was a lot of it was like hood rat, hood rat stuff, things we saw criminals apply. So it was pretty interesting seeing it all kind of in one place. Yeah. And, and, and back at you, you know, when I started really seeing all the things you were doing, um, I was like, whoa, this guy's teaching the stuff that usually in the government, they make a sign of non-disclosure and that we're not allowed to talk about it kind of crap. And then, so it's always good to see like, the fact that one, the United States government does not own everything. Okay. If you look at my other books where it's been redacted, I get all irritated because they act like they own every little bit of information out there. But the reality is, is a lot of the skill sets and improvisations that you have taught and teach to this day um, is stuff criminals come up with, magicians come up with. I mean, a lot of different uh, career paths come up with some pretty cool stuff that can be used sometimes for nefarious actions, right? Yeah. Uh, the best breaching class I've ever had in my life was with a burglar. Uh, the guy showed us, uh, you know, mechanical breaching one-on-one with everything from a compact carjack uh, to just nylon straps that he, you know, cut out of uh, the back of a Honda yeah. uh, to, uh, you know, foam insulation being sprayed into a, an alarm system. You know, weird stuff that we then kind of showed around when we were cross training with other people. They would look at it like, that's some high speed shit. Where'd you learn that? <laughs> uh, Armando, Ar- Armando from the block that steals copper piping from the houses. That's what 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, there's a lot of good information to be gained from bad guys, without a doubt. And even like they're not even so bad. Like thieves, I think, have some really cool ways of getting in and out of stuff, which, which is kind of what I focused on for better half of my career was clandestine methods of entry. You know, so um, we went around learning the criminal way of doing things and then the foreign intel way of doing things, you know, depending on how you wanted that signature to look. But um, before we really get heated, I kind of have a game before the game because I know that this is going to give us some good conversation. So it's going to be a little bit of a rapid fire. All right. So I'll throw, throw some choices at you. You pick the choice and then we'll come back and kind of talk through your answers. Does that sound good? Awesome. All right, here we go. All right, so uh, first one, sewing needle or fishing hook? Uh, sewing needle. All right. A stack of cash or a bag of gold? Gold. An analog watch with hands or a digital watch? Uh, analog watch with hands. All right. And then uh, a spark plug or a bag of BBs? Uh, spark plug. Now this is the tough one. Handcuff key or a bobby pin? <laughs> Handcuff key. All right. And then uh, this is my, my favorite, and of course I had to include it. Rectal concealment or a subdermal concealment? Uh, rectal. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's circle back to the top. So sure. why sewing needle over fishing hook? A uh, fishing hook is just a fishing hook. A sewing needle can be mod modified into a fishing hook. It could be used to suture. It could be used to extract the SIM card on a, a smartphone. It's a more multi-purpose object than just a fishing hook. Yeah, totally agree. You can, uh, you know, anything that's small and straight can be turned into just about anything else you need, right? So yeah. I'm with you on that one. Okay. Uh, stack of cash versus gold. You picked gold. Uh, gold is easier, easier to transport. You can melt it down. You can, you can buy what you need to smelt it in a uh, Home Depot. You can smelt it into a, 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 a plaque, paint it black, put bed liner on it, transport massive amount, amounts of gold internationally if you want to in that, in that way. Uh, there's a gold for, for, for uh, gold buying places all over the world uh, in most of the places that I move in. So it's a pretty interesting way to carry uh, monetary means without overtly carrying monetary means and to transform it into liquid, you know, cash, if you have to in different places, uh, a good knowledge base of metallurgy, smelting, what, what uh, gold is, how to test it, what, you know, how much it, all, all that stuff is pretty good to know, uh, specifically just for, for, for the ability to have value with you when you need it. Yes. And I think you agree. And I know I've been preaching it probably just as long as you have that, you know, bribery is the, uh, if not primary, but definitely secondary form of income in every country, well, even parts of the United States, but every country outside of the U.S., definitely where you've been operating in Mexico, like they count on that, right? Uh, you know, I, I was a cop in Mexico and you know, the, the, the questions of bribery always <laughs> pop up. And yeah, like, dude, of course, uh, bribery is a thing. Um, uh, a, lot, a thing that a lot of Americans struggle with is that they want to travel with their sense of normal or what is right or what is just or what is fair. And you, you need to leave all that shit at your at your at your house, you know, next mm -hmm. to your next to your, you know, your uh, Glock that you EDC carry every day in Texas. Uh, when you travel outside of the confines of the United States or even sometimes within the United States, because it's very segmented, it's laws change. 
yeah. um, normal changes. You know, I've uh, I've been in places in the uh, I've been in places in the U.S. where massive corruption was uncovered by uh, with local authorities. You know, ripping off drug dealers and selling that uh, that drugs uh, elsewhere. You know, Baltimore. You know. Um, and recognizing some of the same activities that I've encountered, uh, you know, Mexican law enforcement do. Uh, but the ability to give somebody cash to let you go, or the conversation that just started in there, and how you would carry it on your person, how you, how you would approach the subject, is interesting. How it's kind of like really foreign to most Americans uh, that kind of haven't traveled. Yeah. 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 I agree. I think it's uh it's definitely a, a skill set you got to kind of get used to and practice and talk about before you go, so that you just you don't look like an idiot when you do try to bribe somebody for the first time. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. I do a urban movement class, which is basically kind of more related to social engineering and, and things of that nature, like bribery. Yeah. And uh, like I go through a point by point, uh, you know, how you, yeah, how could you or how would you bribe somebody and what the thought process of the person receiving the bribe would be, you know, um, having your cell phone out while the bribe or the bribery is taking place is probably not a good thing for the person that is receiving the bribe because he's aware that a, basically a, <laughs> yeah. a phone is a camera, right? Um, carrying your cash that you're going to use for bribery along with your rest of your cash in your bottom pocket is both dangerous and stupid. Yeah. Um, so you want to carry things high up. You want to illuminate the vehicle. You want to not hand things directly. You want to put it in, uh, in a separate space so he doesn't feel uh, like he's going to be caught you know, taking something. And, yeah. you know, it's people say, eh, but that's horrible. Like, why bribery is bad? I know it's, you know, it's a bad thing, but it is something you have you will have to deal with if you seek to enjoy what the world has to offer as far as experiences uh, you know there's there's good and bad yeah well and it's better than a, in a jail cell it's better than a jail cell yeah. <laughs> uh or it, or it's better it's better than getting deeper and deeper into troubles that might uh be more expensive to get out of later on yeah no doubt good stuff um Okay, we did analog watch and digital watch. You picked analog, which I pretty much knew you were going to do that. Yeah, I mean, good for cartography. You know, you can know where you're going. Yeah, uh, it. Uh, yeah, it can give you compass bearings when when you don't have anything else in the middle. Yeah, of the time, right. And also, uh, speaking as somebody that uh, that grew up in Tijuana and had a pretty rowdy childhood. Um, uh, uh, analog watch and a digital watch being offered as a thing, as a as an element or a thing that you you know, barter with and or found and you want to resell. The analog right. watch is the analog watch always has a weird specific value to it digitally that people kind of tend to gravitate towards other than the digital. Right, being able to pawn money on the run. Yep. Uh, or just bartering, you know, that, yeah. that's that specific thing. I think I would focus more on that. Or just get yourself a weird uh, bootleg uh, Rolex, you know. Yeah. Just get yourself a weird bootleg Rolex and carry that on your wrist, you know, and every now and then, you know, people won't know. <laughs> I tell you, there are some good fakes out there. Um, all right. So spark plug and uh, 
bag of BBs. So for those listening, you know, bag of ball bearings, like similar to what you would uh, put in your slingshot when you're a kid, right? Little steel ball bearing balls versus a straight up spark plug that you put in a combustion engine. Yeah. yeah. Spark plug. I know you, uh, let me know your thoughts on that. Uh, spark plug, you break it apart and it turns into a bunch of ninja rocks. Ninja rocks are pretty good to smash windows open. Uh, and not just smashing windows open, but if you get a circ, uh, if you get enough, uh, enough of a bit on the, uh, spark plug that's in a circular shape, you can actually feed it through something like a hairband, something like this. Yeah. Uh, and now you have a way to smash the window open. If you're in the back of an Uber, that turns out not to be an Uber or in the back of a van that turns out to be more of a containment space. Uh, put that inside of a balloon and you can fact a balloon and a, uh, the, the top part of the top part plastic of a water jack or a water bottle flip over a, a balloon in the, on the inside of it. Now you drop your little piece of a spark plug. You can take out lights with that as well. So again, spark plugs are, in my opinion, more functional. Also, yeah. it's a spark. Also, it's a spark plug. Uh, if somebody finds a spark plug on you, it's a spark plug. If somebody finds a bag of BBs on you, where's the BB gun is going to be the next question. Right. So as far as narrative and, 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 and usefulness, I think I'd, I'd, I'd pick up that spark plug more than the BBs. Yeah, you hit all the points I cover. I mean, as a kid, we used to take those things, smash them up. And there is a, there's something about the porcelain and a spark plug and, how, and its relationship with regular glass that causes the whole thing to shatter with very like minimal effort. It's like magic. It's so cool. And exactly what you said. It's like it's like it's ninja. It's an it's it's a it's like a ninja tool. Yeah, it's, uh, that's so. That's what they used to call them, and I think uh, somebody somebody got their their stuff stolen outside of a outside of a, a class that I was doing, and he had his stuff in his car. I told him, dude, don't leave your stuff in the car, but it's fine. It was yeah. in San Francisco, and uh, somebody just went around the block and just smashing windows and smashing grab, and you know, the, he was like, I wonder what they smashed the window with, and you know, see a little piece of spark plug on the ground. Yeah, uh, littlest amount will make the whole damn window shatter. Yeah. It's so cool. Only, only the sides of the windows, not the not the windshield. Right. So if people don't try and smash the windshield, like, hey, it doesn't work, Ed. That's not the, it's not the yeah. same type of glass. Yeah, that's the difference between laminated glass and then tempered, right? Passenger windows and rear windows usually tempered, and it's your front one is laminated and it's built for impact, and you know yep. something hits the windshield. So, um, okay, we uh. Moving along here, you got uh, did handcuff key versus bobby pin. Yeah, you, uh, picked, you picked handcuff key. Yeah, handcuff yeah. key uh, specifically. Uh, you know, any standard. If if I'm worried, if so, we, if we talk about bobby pins, there's always this image that comes to mind of people trying to break out of handcuffs, pick them open, or use it as a shim to open to facilitate the release of the handcuff. Yeah. Um, or uh, making a modified lockpick set with them and all this cool, cool stuff. Realistically, out of all the cases I've studied, uh, either people using their own means to get out of custody or utilizing means around their environment to get out of custody. Most people that have gone on, gotten out of regular or standard custody, with, with, which means police officer, uh, being arrested by the police or being arrested by people that used to work for the police and now are using their handcuffs to abduct people and stuff like that. Mm. Most of those cases, they're not improvising tools to open up their handcuffs behind their back. They're utilizing a handcuff key that they already modified and hid on their person. That's usually what uh, what gets uh, the most success and traction when it comes to opening up, opening up handcuffs on your person. Now, 
uh, a handcuff key that you can modify with a few files, um, with a few iron files can be uh, turned into something like, like this guy right here. Yeah. And as, and as you can see, there's an angle ground ground on it and there's a few, there's a divot on one side and a flat surface on the other side of the ring. Uh, this is for you to orientate the key behind your back. And also it allows for you to tie two of these together or tie a piece of uh, wire or something like that together so you can spin it. When talking about trying to open up a pair of handcuff key be behind, keys behind your back, a key is gonna trump a shim, a, a key is gonna, a modified key is gonna trump most things out there. Um, yeah. So I, I'd probably focus on getting a metal, if I'm worried about handcuffs, I'd probably focus on getting a metal key and modifying it. Um, so you modify an angle on it so you can get into the keyway at an on angle. You modify the flag on it uh, with a small jeweler saw. So you get a split on it in case you encounter some mule hookups or some high security stuff out there. And you put a leverage arm on the key so you can spin it behind your back. Now, uh, one yeah. thing one thing people don't realize is that handcuff keys themselves are not made to be utilized by the person that has the handcuffs on. Right. You got to... So designing a handcuff key, a plastic handcuff key to open up handcuffs behind your back that is not only smaller than the standard handcuff key, it's also made of plastic, which is brittle as shit, is probably not, I wouldn't, I, I don't recommend plastic handcuff keys is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, another thing to kind of think about is I, I did, uh, I did some, uh, I, I had some conversations with people from the FBI's OSAP program about, you know, some of the stuff that they would carry. And, uh, some of the uh, some of the some of the the elements that people uh, tend to to figure out and carry, and you you go on the gamut, and from them to some of the some of the uh, some of the uh, SF guys that I've gotten to talk to that got exposed to some of the material, and again, I can't talk about all of it, of course, you know, there's a there's a privilege there, uh, but bobby pin is always the one that comes up, right? You know, carry a bobby pin, and <laughs> and I'm not gonna I'm not. And it's always a, and every now and then there's a, there's a, there's a bald dude with a bobby pin, you know, uh, concealed somewhere on his person. I said, <laughs> well, why are you carrying a bobby pin? Like, what's the, uh, what's the narrative behind the bobby pin? Oh, the bobby pin's going to be used for this and that, you know, but why are you carrying it? You know, um, having, having spoken to people from every, every, everywhere from Cuban, uh, Cuban military guys to uh, people that work uh, in SF groups all over Europe, the Filipino intelligence services, the Indonesian SEALs, all of them know what a bobby pin is used for. Like, it's not a hidden thing or a concealed it's a thing. Yeah. It's not a secret. Um, and, uh, you know, if I was going to carry anything of that, that nature, I'd probably carry the uh, tweezers from from this uh, from a Swiss Army knife. Yeah. The, 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 just the tweezers from inside of the Swiss Army knife, if nobody's ever kind of tested those out, those are probably the best shimming material on the planet i mean the i right use, gauge yeah I the right that. gauge and also they have narrative to them the narrative of a of a of, a, of that is to you know pluck your the, the longest hairs in your body are your nose hairs did you know that <laughs> pluck one it hurts all the way down to the uh you know the root chakra nuts yeah yeah <laughs> we will be right back after the break But uh, all you have to do to those tweezers is split them open, and now you have the perfect shim, you know. Yeah. And it has and, and it has an error. What is that? Pair of tweezers. It's also yeah. pretty. It's also easier to hide than a bobby pin in a lot of ways. And bobby pins 
are not all made the same. If you assume that you will go to a class where they're going to show you how to pick open stuff like handcuffs and, and, and make shims and all this stuff out of the bobby pin, realize that the bobby pin that they're buying for that class is a prop. It's something that they buy because they know it works. Yeah. Now, if you go out there in the world and just pick up something from the store, not all of them are made the same. Some of them are going to have a welded tip on them. It's going to intervene with how they function. So, um, you know, I always talk about uh, thinking about tool procurement as, you know, thinking Californian, you know, locally sourced, low carbon footprint, ethically raised and all that stuff, right? So if you're going to travel somewhere, more so than bringing the tools with you, you've got to educate yourself on what works, what shape works, what gauge works. So you'll buy some of these cool ninja tools to open up handcuffs, but buy them to learn how to make them, not not to carry that, you know, is yeah. what I usually tell people. I like it, man. That's all valuable information for the listener, no doubt about it. And uh, yeah, I always looked at bobby pins as a great backup to the backup, right? I mean, if you got, if you're, you, you, you end up in country and, you don't have access to a lot of cool stuff. Well then sure. You, that's a good starting point. But uh, you know, if you've seen in book one, I always say it like a razor blade and a handcuff key, what won't get you out of one thing will get you out of the other. Right. I mean, so it's uh it's a versa two versatile tools. You can conceal pretty much anywhere and uh, they'll get you out of all kinds of restraints. Okay. So you picked uh, let's see here. Last one was, uh, this will be fun, rectal concealment versus subdermal concealments. Uh, having actually done both myself. Yeah. I've, I've done both myself. Uh, and uh, subdermal, looks like it's, people can kind of see a little bit yeah, of what's left of the subdermal. Uh, that did not work. Uh, <laughs> it did not work. Uh, and some of the rectal stuff, I mean, I, I was working in the biggest, richest drug portal into the United States on the planet, right? So I got to see everything under the sun as far as what goes, you know, under, you know? How much, um, how much can fit in there? How much can fit in there, what sizes, uh, yeah. what shapes they have to be, what length. Um, and also, you know, when you talk about hiding something really quickly, unless you're home somewhere and you have a friend that's a bottom on it, bottom, bottom body modification guy, I have a few of them that are into biohacking and stuff like that. When I went to learn about some of this stuff, I didn't go to you know, military circles. I went to the biohacking, uh, yeah. body hacking guy at crowds. So those guys know, right? Um, uh, one of them helped me out with implanting something like this little black disc, an RFID chip. Um, and for testing purposes, they wanted to see if we can store some medical information in there in case you have somebody in a situation and you, mm -hmm. you, so you can scan his medical information. That survived in there for a bit. And then I went off and did a shim, a metal shim underneath the skin. Uh, you know, it's, it sounds like a good idea, but it's, it's pretty, first off, if, if you've, if this is like a last ditch effort, hiding something under your skin and hiding something up your anus is something at the end of the spectrum of options. You know, that's, yeah. that, that is some bad situation and your tools were somewhere and they migrated somewhere else and you're trying to keep your things the deeper you go into a custody situation the less clothing you'll have on probably uh yeah. things will, will things will be lost things will be taken so usually the last uh line of your edc will go up your ass will go in your mouth or or subdermal if, if you're into some of that uh 
realistically, most people are not going to be able to cut, cut open their arm and put something in inside their, you know, their wrist, right? Realistically, most people are not going to be able to, to make a fake wound with latex out there in the field every day and stick it on their arms. Uh, but most people can buy a... <laughs> But I mean, but most people can hide. Uh, most people can go to the store and buy a chapstick and a condom, a chapstick container and a condom. Now yeah. I say a chapstick container and not something bigger. Uh, and this is this coming from a heroin smuggler. If it's longer than the length of your thumb, it's probably it's it's probably going to be longer than the length of the last bit of of uh, tubing after before things come out of your ass, basically. Yeah. If it's longer than that, it's not going to be able to go past that bend. If it goes up, it's not going to be able to come back down. So if you hit something up your ass, now you're going to be in trouble. Right, right. It, if well, you're not, so yeah, the uh, the I know the anal muscles are basically the same size as a fist. Yep. So, so if you, you want to make it, sure you keep it in your fist. Yep. And don't go above the fist. No, it, because <laughs> if it, because if for some reason it goes all the way in, it's not going to come back out. Yeah. And and uh, you know. That's one reason why you would keep that length. Uh, the condom provides lubrication, provides housing for whatever you're going to keep in there. Uh, and it also provides a quick in. You put two knots on the bottom of it so you can pull it out, or you put dental floss on it so you can pull the whole thing out and actually go deep with the concealment. Uh, that's one method. Uh, it's it's uh, I remember going to the spy museum in D.C. and seeing the rectal... Uh, toolkit they have there <laughs> yeah and i was like wow i mean sperm count has changed since the past and also rectal size i think um that was big that was a big thing uh dietary concerns have to be taken into place we're gonna hide up something up your ass during a day or a few days uh bowel movement regulation all these things come into play they they, they actually have this guy basically was a was not only a heroin smuggler he was a trainer he would train some of the other heroin smugglers. So he went around the whole gamut of how they would prepare to hide something up their ass. And I, I, I just said, you know what? Let me get let me get you some cigarettes and, and some coffee and let me sit down and just fucking write some of the shit down. Yeah. Uh, uh, they they were not hiding things to get out of custody, but they were hiding things and go, getting them through some of the most highly secure border crossings on the planet. Right. Wow. So uh they they know something you know yeah um so as far as speed and how easily you can just take something and just put it up your ass uh i think i think uh they showed me that they showed me that lesson that you know something up your butt would be probably quicker and could survive deeper into a search and seizure if you know what you're doing you know right yeah i i'd, I'd go with that too because i mean let's face it you anytime you gotta put a cut somewhere right off the bat you're given that's an indicator you know for somebody to examine yeah it's a wound and also it uh is detrimental to your health maybe long uh, long run you know if you're if you're in some sort of thing that is prolonged you know your sickness is, a, is an issue infection is an issue yeah you know your, your immune system is going to struggle a bit you know one of the one of the things that struggles the most when you're in a situation like that sleep deprivation will just create a cascading effect when it comes to your health uh right. so probably poking a hole in you probably not the not the best uh, not a great idea option. not the best option yeah that's all good info uh, right there in a rapid fire look at that how much stuff we covered i kind of set you up though on that so but awesome. uh thanks 
<laughs> but, butt stuff is butt stuff is my thing here. Okay. It's always fun. I was actually uh anytime it's time to post our episodes, um, one of the producers does a good job of putting the bio and the description of the show and everything. So when I go back to the shows after they're live, I uh I I cut and paste that exact description into everything else that I post, right? Well, so for that split second that I have to click on that show, an ad will always come up before the show starts. So because I've had such interesting conversations with my guests, the first ad is for herpes medication. Oh, yeah. So I was like, wow, look at, I mean, we're getting ads, quality ads from pharmaceutical companies that probably no one else is getting because of my choice of discussion. Now, after this one with butt, you know, butt (laughs) stuff, I'm guessing hemorrhoid medication. I mean, what do you think? Uh, uh, so, you know, sex lube, uh, condoms, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, rib, you rib, Trojan. Rib, rib ones. So they, so this is actually coming from the heroin smuggler. He said they would use rib ones because they would get more traction as far yep. as stay, stay. Yeah. Rib ones. So you can stay inside <laughs> this again. These, these are things that you wouldn't know. And unless you go to Mexico right. and I mean, talk to uh, them. That's interesting stuff for, for, at least for me, I don't know. Most yeah. of our listeners are probably <laughs> tuned out by now. Okay. Um, all right, so now we, 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 you've touched on a little bit of narcotics. So um, when you talk about this whole drug world, you know, I'm kind of curious. We've, we've learned over time that the cartels are pretty damn smart. At least they seem that way. They've got some strategy. They're strategic. They plan. They coordinate. And they pull off pretty incredible missions, if you will. Um, but so I'm curious, did they plan for marijuana to be legalized? And kind of that's why they've what what appears to be they've switched back, switched to fentanyl is kind of like their main piece or what are your um, thoughts on that? Uh, so a few things. Uh, the, I'm all for pot legalization, you know, legalize. It. It's fine. It'll yeah. make you feel it makes you feel funny. In my career, I never had to fight a violent weed head. It's fine. It's OK. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's good. It makes you, it's, you know, it's good for sleep. A drunk person's worse than a high person, right? I know. You know, so, so don't get me wrong. I'm all about it. I burned acres of it uh, during my time working. Uh, I prosecute, uh, I arrested people that were later prosecuted for it. And it's, you know, it is what it is. It was, it was a, it was a weird time. Um, when uh, legalization took place of marijuana in California, the cartels took two approaches. Number one, they invested in the legal weed market, which with which they were already invested in at an early start because a lot of the illegal grows that then turned into legal grows were under cartel. the protection or under the protection and or had some sort of interest related to cartel activity. You know, there, there was recently a whole... Uh, they recently found a bunch of them in California, a bunch of cartel grows, you know, producing high quality, uh, high quality marijuana, you know, under un, uh, under the uh, under the noses of the uh, of the uh, federal government in the U.S. Now, they've done that in public lands as well. Uh, there's a guy, uh, John Norris, who used to be a, a wildlife game guy, and he, he he discovered a lot of these grows as well in, in public lands in California and stuff like that. So they didn't they didn't stop growing weed. They just they just figure out how to diversify where they grow it, which is now they grow it in public lands in the U.S. too. Um, what what did happen is that their their weed output was lowered, and they figured out that you know heroin was the next big thing after 
mm-hmm. after after the uh, you know crackdown on uh, opiates, uh, prescription opiates in the U.S. They they saw that uh, they saw an alley, uh, an avenue. So a lot of these hillsides are leached over years and years, decades of marijuana growth. growth. So the, the nutrients are leached from the ground is, is, is what a friend of mine told me about. They went out there and kind of investigated some of these things. Uh, so the heroin that is produced in Mexico is not as strong as something you would find probably like somewhere in Afghanistan. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not that dark, stinky well, stuff that will make you go to space and back. It's, uh, it's lighter brown. It's not as potent. And a way they could they remedied the fact that it wasn't as strong was is that they started lacing it with hair, with uh, fentanyl, um, yeah. and that led to a lot of people, you know, ODing and and uh, has led to a lot of people ODing not only in the U.S. but also in Mexico. A lot of things that people don't realize or factor into the equation is that Mexico itself is a giant drug market as well. A lot of the violence you see and murders you see on TV is. Uh, on TV coming out of Mexico or on my feed because there's not, realistically there's not a lot of news coverage of it. Um, a lot of the stuff you see is related to uh, street dealers killing each other in, in in Mexico. Places like Tijuana, places like uh, Sonora right now, it's basically one gang fighting the other and the way they fight each other is going after the distribution networks locally. We will be right back after the break. So yeah, they they switched to fentanyl, right? And right now, you you're seeing a shift to they are importing the pill presses, some high quality ones, and they're making their own uh, fentanyl fake pain medication pills now. Wow! That are gonna that they're showing up in the U.S. I have been showing up in the U.S. for a while now. The quality is going up. Uh, but I've had some some uh, people that are, you know, they know their stuff about pain medication. I put uh, two of these things in a picture. Which one is a real one? Which one is it? And, you know, that's that's going to that, that's that's a dangerous thing. Wow. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's multi-billion dollar industry, so they can afford to go buy exactly what the pharmace- pharmaceutical companies are buying, right? Yeah, uh, weed, weed legalization as a, a counter cartel tactic is is completely missing the point of how these groups operate. You know. Yeah. Well, they've already moved. They've already moved forward before we even talked about legalizing it. Right? Yeah, and uh, it's 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 a, it's a past le- uh, there's legislation passed in Mexico now where it's moving towards full legalization in Mexico. Mm. And guess who has their hands in a lot of the grows that are going to pop up in Mexico? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean politicians, real, right? <laughs> well, it's it, sadly nowadays it's kind of the same thing as when it comes to yeah. So you, you can't have a giant marijuana grow in Michoacan without paying the cartels to protect it, basically. So it's basically feeding back into the whole system. Yeah. Uh, um, again, mm. I have nothing against marijuana. You know. I, all about it you know pot cookies and watching avatar all night all about it but uh as far as uh, as far as uh, legalizing it to fight uh organized crime or to get at the cartel's wallets is yeah that's a, a, if if that was a solution it, it's a solution that might have worked probably in the early 90s right yeah i think it's uh it's a little far gone at this point um 
another thing, kind of switching gears, I like to move all over the place, but uh, I'm curious to get your definition. So for me, being a you know career guy, we had you know permissive, semi-permissive, non-permissive, and denied areas. There's really two factors that determined how you labeled these areas. One was how much control the government actually has of the country or the relationship that that government has with the United States. And that's how we as special operators would go, all right, we're going into a semi-permissive or a non-permissive or just a straight up denied environment. Denied environment could be, you know, a place where there is no government in place and you're just kind of on your own or there's an extreme government in place and they don't want Americans there, right? So now I know in your description, it's non-permissive environment uh, specialists. How, how on your end do you define it? Uh, I learned the word first off from an NSW guy. Uh, he taught hmm. me this, this uh, terminology. I actually went through, I went through training with people from uh, NCIS and there was a few uh, ex team guys on, on that group. Uh, they, they were uh, they were showing us how to utilize uh, armored vehicles in 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 a, in a hostile area to protect a VIP, right? Mm -hmm. And when they were seeing how the, some of the ways we were utilizing them, they they were like, uh, we had more in common with the people that were moving Mohammed Karzai in Afghanistan than people from the Secret Service moving the president, because we were working in a war zone. Basically, some of the people we were transporting were attacked with grenade launchers right uh yeah. so uh the, the the one of them turned to me and said like wait so you're rolling with a kit on rifles at the ready and two suburbans that look look alike and you're you're putting them back and forth as you move during you know away and i was like yeah yeah, that's 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 uh do you tr do, don't you trust the local authorities to open up traffic for you it's like no but you you're, you're you work for the government yeah but you have to understand that the government the state government works in one way yeah the municipal government works another way and the federal government works another way and sometimes interests within their police forces are working with cartels and they're working against each other so there was no trust anywhere um so he says well that sounds like a non-permissive environment to me. Right. So to define, um, I think it's an environment where it uh, pushes you to be independent as far as having the means and methods to protect yourself and those around you. You know, having the means and methods to independently try and service yourself if you have to, you know, a wound and or a traumatic uh, injury of some sort. And the fact that if something happens, Calling 911, calling the local authorities, calling the military, calling people like that might not be the best option. Got it. Um, so I think a non-permissive environment is a place that doesn't allow you to carry what you would need to protect yourself, uh, not being allowed to, not being able to, are two completely different things. So California. Uh, really. California. California is <laughs> one of them, yeah. New York, New York State, New York, Maryland. Yeah, yeah. New York, uh, New York specifically, they actually utilize some of the pictures from my uh, Instagram to pass non-magnetic knife legislation. In, 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 oh, wow. In the city. So it's like, that. thank you, you know, but it's pretty bad. So, I as guess long as they gave uh, you credit. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, somebody somebody shared some screen captures as far as what they were looking at, as far as what they wanted to yeah. you know, prohibit to put into the legislation. Um, the 
Mexico is in a lot of places, not all of them, but a lot of places, just as you can say, California in the United States is a non-permissive environment. Uh, there are parts of Mexico where you can't go, you can't fly over, even if you're, even if you're a military helicopter, well, you can't fly over some of these places. Um, there, Sinaloa beat the Mexican army. The Sinaloa cartel basically, and there's videos of it on my Instagram that uh, every now and then uh, I repost. There's videos of them surrounding the, the military and just shaking hands, like gentlemanly agreement that we're not going to you know, annihilate you, basically. Wow. So in my mind, I think that's a pretty non-permissive yeah. environment. So I, I kind of focus on that, you know. Right. No, I like it. It's, uh, that's interesting that a team guy or whatever NSW guy kind of pointed you in that direction. It's cool. Um, I mean, that's what I used to teach to all the guys for a long time was really getting them to understand the, uh, the bigger picture first. I'm a big macro to micro, you know, like start, let's start big. Let's talk about the different environments and then let's work our way down into, okay, this is what you do for each depending on what you're doing. But, um, yeah, that's interesting, man. When I saw that in your description, I was like, huh, yeah, you don't see that being thrown around too much. Um, okay. So, you know, I know you got some cool seminars and stuff, uh, that you do and classes and courses, you know, for, for anyone who doesn't know much about you, which I'm sure I got to assume most of my listeners know who you are. Plus, I mean, you've been on much more prestigious podcasts like Joe Rogan. I mean, um, so, uh, tell us about some of the courses and, and stuff you got going. Uh, you know, I really, a lot of these, a lot of these courses are just focused on that, you know, uh, creating independent thinkers, creating people that, uh, not only can arm themselves or, or manufacture the tools they need in country or out or in a place where they get separated from everything, but just basically trying to provide to them a software download of, you know, what if I don't have access to Amazon prime? What if I don't have access to call 911? What? what if I, what if I, what if I, what if I can't drink the water out of the tap? All these uh, things, right? And oh my um, God, you just lost ninety nine percent of America, right there. <laughs> well, uh, sp specifically, just telling them that not being able to and not being allowed to are two completely different things. That's probably at yeah. the start of everything. Um, people take are taken aback by that. Like, what do you mean? Are you talking about just being a criminal? It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, there's a difference between emulation and reflection. Uh, it, Emulation, you know, I'm going to dress like a thug, I'm going to live the lifestyle, I'm going to do a bunch of drugs, and I'm going to be a sociopathic, you know, piece of, you know, whatever. Uh, reflection is seeing that behavior, knowing what it's about, knowing how to replicate it myself if I have to, knowing how to recognize, recognizing through emulation, um, and then reflecting again, reflecting back of a solution or response, right? So it's the same way you teach counter ambushing, you know. There's no way you can teach a counter ambush uh, ambushing class without first basically are you ambushers yeah okay let's go do a counter ambush class right predator, you know, that's prey, a, prey predator yeah so a lot of the stuff that i focus on is basically criminal mindset uh, theory um, specifically related to how they act how they how they procure how they improvise um in one of the classes i go up and i, I go and actually showcase a go bag that was picked up by uh, some of the guys that i used to work with uh, in a safe house in Guadalajara, and it's a it's a cartel safe uh, go bag, and it's pretty fascinating what it has what it had in there. Um, but uh, that's the that's that perspective, 
you know, what's our perspective? Like, if, if they have that, why don't we have some sort of semblance of an idea of how to build something like that for ourselves? Mm-hmm. We're not criminals. We're not cops. Doesn't matter. You know, anybody can be a criminal or anybody can be elevated to the, to, to the, uh, to the position of first responder in a really bad situation. Right. Yeah. Uh, just because you've never been one doesn't mean you never will be one or just because you've always been taught to completely negate that aspect of your nature or our nature as human beings, because we live in a civil society, some of us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't mean that it can revert back to something like that or, under the right conditions in a different part of the world, you can, can go into that. So uh, I do classes related to weaponology. You know, I don't, I don't do knife karate. Uh, I don't show people how to uh, do moves on knives. I basically to- tell people, this is how people arm themselves in places where they're not supposed to be armed. This is how they hide them. You know, mm-hmm. if they can't take pa- something past the point of inspection, they will create something that is component based they'll build something past the point of inspection with things that are innocuous to a searcher. If yeah. they can't do that, they'll build something out of the things they find past the point of inspection. Um, or if there's, or if they're more, you know, proficient, they might bury something. They might bury a bottle of uh, vodka at, in, at Coachella before the concert starts and then dig it up afterwards. So they might kind of not even bother with uh, going past the security checkpoint and putting something in there before the security checkpoint is up. Hmm. So I, I go through that mindset of how people prepare themselves and not for them to do it themselves. I'm not showing people how to smuggle shit and play it into a, a concert venue. Um, but in a way I am, uh, just like if you're teaching how to, somebody how to drive, uh, if something ha- bad happens, they're gonna weaponize that vehicle. You know, They're gonna weaponize the accelerator, they're gonna weaponize the corner of that car. Um, I think a lot of these a lot of these things are taboo. Uh, I don't have clearance. I will never get clearance. I was born in another country. Uh, I've worked for a foreign uh, government. I'm not going to get clearance ever. So I can talk about some of these things more openly than most. Um, and not only that, but a lot of the material that I've shared with both law enforcement and military circles internationally, a lot of that comes back in the form of after action. Hey, Ed, have you ever seen these types of handcuffs? Hey, Ed, the Chinese are now utilizing these types of restraints, plastic restraints on Hong Kong protesters. Do you have any insights? It's like, yes. Can you send me some? I'll take it apart. You know, mm-hmm. that, 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 is, that is a conversation that I have usually in, in some of these classes. We will be right back after the break. Uh, arming yourself. Uh, building the tools and knowing how some some of the situations related to abduction happen. And I, when I talk about tools, I don't mean just handcuff keys and shims and stuff like that. Restraints could be chemical restraints. It could, it could be drugs. You know, I go into and, and go into some of the chemical restraints that are out there uh, with some material that was shared with me by some high-level people that are still active out there. Uh, I go into the abduct the anatomy of an abduction. You know. Uh, how some of these abductions, I go into an, the anatomy of an abduction in two ways. I talk about an American one and people think it's Mexico. And I talk about a Mexican one and people think it's the United States. And I do that specifically <laughs> so people can. So I, I'll, say, I'll say this. Uh, imagine the scenario. Uh, a group of people dressed as federal police officers knock on your door, break, your, break it down, talk to your neighbors to calm down, uh, set up a perimeter. They have lights on their vehicles. Or, moving in suburbans, 
uh, full, full uniforms and they drag somebody out of the house uh, with handcuffs on and some paperwork in somebody's hands and put you in a car and leave. That person is later found dead. You know, he was abducted, basically. Mm -hmm. you, everybody would say, wow, that's a horrible Mexican story. That happened in San Diego. Yeah. That happened in San Diego, California. People dressed as ICE agents, went on a raid, took somebody, uh, a businessman that was actually hiding in, in, in San Diego because he had businesses and he was almost abducted in Tijuana. And he was dragged to Mexico and killed. Right? I remember it, that story. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, people want to research it. It's uh, Los Palillos gang was the yeah. one that did this, right? So it's not unheard of or it's not, it's, it's not that common to most people, but it is pretty common in a lot of the migrant communities across the country. Uh, a lot of these things happen, take place, and and then it's it's starting to pop up in other in other weird, more open mm -hmm. uh, spots. It's not fear mongering; it's just realizing that the uh, you know the border is only respected by those that can't jump it. Is what I usually <laughs> tell people. Um, uh, and uh, I focus on that. And uh, finally, I do a social engineering class and a medical class. The medical class I don't do myself. I have a cross train eighteen uh, Delta medic diabetic flight medic and current board trauma uh, board certified trauma surgeon that helps us out with yeah. the class i basically run the donkey show around it so i set up the scenarios for people you know uh Tijuana does have donkey shows right uh yes yes it does <laughs> speaking of which i have my uh you know, pet oh, donkey yeah. here. the donkey okay. show check out his name i don't know if i can see it Tijuana. His name's Tijuana, and he's a donkey, oh, okay. <laughs> and he's made in Japan. Anyway, uh, I set up scenarios uh, related to some of the, the medical training. Wise, I basically set up kind of the scenarios. Uh, you know, uh, car on the side of the road. Uh, your fa a family member of yours uh, it's got struck by something. You're trying to deal with that, and uh, uh, people come over and try to record you with their phone. Uh, what do you do? Uh. Right stuff like that that has happened to me at working you know what do you do uh you carry your your medical equipment on an ankle rig and you are in the situation where there's a maybe a mass casualty event or people responding after actively to somebody shooting and they and the police officer finds you kneeling down and trying to extract something from your ankle <laughs> and I did, I did this not uh, ankle carry for medical equipment is fine. You know, if, yeah. if that is, if it's worked for you, awesome. I, I took some, uh, Guardia Nacional federal police officers from Mexico and put them in a scenario where some of them, some, some of the guys were carrying ankle rigs to take out, uh, medical equipment to treat somebody. And these guys, the, all they had was a, there's a shooting. People are being attended medically you guys are going to be responding with paintball guns and just anybody that you see as a threat, just plug them. <laughs> shot all these guys going for the uh, medic equipment, right? They, they shot one, at least one of them was lit up because he was, you know, struggling to take out. They, in Mexico and a lot of parts of the world, somebody kneeling down to reach for something on his ankle, that's a gun. That's a right. gun holster, right? But, you know, you wouldn't know about that until you kind of experience some of these things. Uh, well, that and, supports, I mean, 60% of how we communicate with each other is body language. Yeah, yeah. And so you uh, really have to ask yourself, like, okay, what, what language 
like body language, what kind of body language do each of us really read and understand about one another? You know, a cop has got his way of looking at your body language, you know, versus a doctor. Yeah. Right? And they see you a certain way, then they're totally thinking about something completely different than how a cop is thinking. So that makes perfect sense to me. If, if in an environment I yell shooting or sh- shots or somebody's getting shot, everybody's yeah. going to be looking for a gun or a rifle. Everybody's going to be looking for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody going to doing this, somebody dropping down, trying to do that. Somebody going to the waistline. All that yeah. is going to be probably misconstrued as a gun for some, for if, if there's people responding to it. So the lesson there for people is, you know, e- 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 in situations like this, your safety is first. So mm-hmm. be discreet, right? Um, if you don't have to act, don't act. Uh, but if you have, feel compelled to act, do so taking your safety into consideration first. Yeah. Maybe dropping down to the ground and doing a tactical extraction of my uh, medical equipment from my from, from my foot is probably not the best uh, option. <laughs> yeah. uh, it might get you plugged. It, it, it might in some situations. Or in other situations, it's probably the most comfortable uh, way to carry, and you can do that if you want. It's fine. There's yeah. no absolutes. People, people usually think of uh, talking absolutes. Or like if they say something doesn't, it hasn't worked for us in scenarios where we put unknowns into the scenarios. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but again, for training, for what I do in training is I try and provide people with a software download and an, a controlled experience. Uh, when I say by controlled experience, I'll give you a kit that we have, which is, you know, handcuff keys, a shim, um, cordage. I'll show you how to use all of that. And then I'll tell you the next day, you can't use any of this. You have to build everything that is in there from shit you find either on the street or at the Harrell at Walmart or Walgreens, mm-hmm. or just figure out what you need to make to, and then they come back and then they start trying to use that. And basically they set up a workshop uh, and everybody starts constructing their tools, everything from a pointed object to a you know a chemical dispersal agent uh, made out of uh, brake fluid if they want or whatever, yeah. uh, but uh, they just make they, they make uh, brake cleaner. I mean, but just they just make their their, their tool set, and that's what they take into the uh, scenario. Sometimes when I Love go it. into the whole abduction, you know, they come out of it and I tell them whatever your concept of normal was before this weekend, whatever that line was for you, you just put that line. Now this is. <laughs> Now, now your normal is over here. So when somebody talks to you about hiding something on your person and going through a point of inspection and trying to defeat a Garrett, you already did that in a class, mm-hmm. right? You already went to your ho- your hotel room, built something, hit it as, as best you could, saw some people getting their shit found, readjusted, and then went back through and you did it, right? So you know what that is. That shows you a few things. One, you can be armed anywhere. You don't need to buy anything on app Amazon Prime. And also, security is an illusion. Yeah. And that's that's the main thing I, I try and push forward to people. If you think you're safe because they're searching people outside of the venue, you already bought into the, into the security, right? Illusion of it. Uh, right. And just every now and then I have members of law enforcement actually apply some of the searches for, for the... Uh, the tools to get our handcuffs or the uh, the uh, the weapons that the people manufacture, and they themselves come out of it like 
what have I been missing? You know, what have right. I, what have I missed? And if uh, listeners, uh, law enforcement listeners are out there, try this little trick. And it's something I don't share a lot, but I'm going to share this with your listeners because they're probably pretty cool and into weird shit. <laughs> um, go to, ho- to me. Yes, they're weird. Yeah, they're weird. They're weird <laughs> shit. Uh, go to Hobby Lobby. Go to Hobby Lobby and buy some of these magnet clasps. Magnet clasps. Okay, he's showing that on the screen. Or go watch the YouTube of this. Uh, get one of those mag- magnets clasps and tie it on one of your fingers. As a searcher, if you're looking for something on somebody's person, uh, these these are magnetic yeah. and will be reactive to anything to steel. Um, yeah. So if there's something steel behind cloth, yeah. That is a pretty good hack. Put it on your pinky, put it on your gloves. It'll, it'll provide a little tug and it's actually sensitive. Pro- probably yeah, no. Like that. That's a made in, made in Tijuana. I came up yeah, with that. Tijuana post. metal detector. Yeah. We well, <laughs> didn't have Garrett's. We didn't have Garrett's. So we had to use something, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Love it. So, so that's, that's basically it. As far as the training I provide, just controlled experiences. I uh, show people weird stuff. And, and when the, uh, and mostly uh, the mindset thing, not being allowed to, not being able to, are two completely different things. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm there's, with you. There's, there's a, there's a freedom, uh, there's a freedom in the knowledge that this gives you, uh, and hopefully, nobody ever uses it. But the people right. that have used it come have come back and just added more to it as far as the experiences that they had. Yeah, thank you very much. That's a lot of good stuff. I mean, we could keep going and going, but I kind of want to get you thrown into this little hypothetical scenario. You ready? This is Clint Emerson, host of Can You Survive This Podcast? If you're enjoying the show, please check out my 100 Deadly Skill book series on Amazon or wherever you buy books. We will be right back after the break. Uh, no, no, I'm not, <laughs> but that, that, that's, that's, that's You'll be uh, all right. I'll, I'll do a uh, survival do... expert. All right, here we go. Oh, yep. If he put fuck it, we'll, what's it say? Sorry. I missed the last part. <laughs> That's, uh, we'll, we'll do it live. Yeah. Fuck it. We'll do it live. I like that. Um, go. okay, here we go. So, so for you again, we're a little special here. All right. So we're putting you up against a previous guest. Okay. Now yeah. this exact scenario, uh, was thrown at Aaron Brockovich. Okay. Now, you know, Aaron Brockovich, she's a, She's a, she's had a movie with Julia Roberts. She was an activist. She, she basically was a legal clerk with cleavage that went into a small town and discovered a huge water problem, uh, PG and E, you know, big lawsuit one, uh, really cool, cool lady. Um, so we're putting you up against the same exact scenario that she was in. All right. Okay. So for this scenario, you were being paid to do a security consultation for a company in a very small town in Northern Ontario, Canada. Okay. Uh, to get there, you must board a very small 10 person airplane. All right. It's one of those little, you know, puddle jumpers, right? Uh, and when you board the aircraft, you see that there's only two other passengers plus the pilots. Okay. So first question, do you a take a seat closest to the front of the plane or do you choose the seat at the rear of the plane uh first of all rear of the plane uh i'll 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 choose the rear of the plane just by the numbers and possibilities of me surviving something that falls out of the sky that has that has the most of its mass at the front of it i'll probably choose the tail section myself yes and actually they say 
right? They say if you sit in the rear, you, you, yeah, it, it has the higher probability of staying intact, so your body will be found. <laughs> I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of drug planes fall from the sky. Uh, some <laughs> some of my friends made some of those uh, drug planes fall. I used to ride around in a turbo commander, and we had some really weird pilots that uh, used to fly us around. So hearing stories from them and actually seeing some of the crashes and stuff like that. Uh, as far as as far as uh, survivability, you know, something falling from the sky is pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'd I'd always plop myself in the you know all the way in the back, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, good answer. Um, so yeah, you choose the uh, you choose the the rear of the plane. So you grab a seat. The plane takes off. You take your laptop out. You figure, hey, I'm going to get some work done. Okay. While you're in the air, you start to feel some extreme turbulence, and the pilots actually come over to the PA system in a very nervous, you know, voice saying, "Hey, you know, this is this is some pretty bad turbulence." Um, so, do you a tighten your seatbelt and keep working, or b tighten your seatbelt and start packing everything up? Uh, anything, anything that is going to be able to fly it out of your hands is going to become a projectile and something that's moving up and down. Right. I also went through jump school, so I know what that feels like. <laughs> um, so you want to, you want to, you want to secure everything you secure, everything you have, uh, in a bag, if you can, uh, most of my back, most of my backpacks are usually skateboard bags. So yeah. they have, a, they have, uh, these outside clips to them. So you can clip them on to like your backpack, uh, to your, to your uh skateboard yeah uh so i usually clip that to my leg uh when i'm flying so if i like if, it if, if, if secures leash. your backpack it's a leash or when i'm moving around it secures things on you if i'm flying over ontario it's probably gonna it's probably gonna mean that i'm gonna have to have what i need to have with me or on me i'm not gonna be able to go and see a uh, check luggage or some shit like that it's a small yeah. plane like that so my backpack is everything um so I'm probably going to secure Titan strap and secure backpack to me, you know, Got it. Uh, look, like look that. around unless I look around if there's any projectiles that might hit me in the head and uh, yeah. listen, listen to instructions. Basically. I mean, you're yeah. only, you're, you're, you're a monkey riding a water uh, barrel uh, down the, uh, down the hillside. But, That's right. Especially, especially in these, uh, these, these scenarios we build. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you put your laptop and stuff away. Uh, you've got your uh, backpack yet yeah, clipped to your uh, ankle. So, and it, it kind of follows a little bit of the same stuff we would do. You know, our go bags are always, uh, leashed to us in case you end up in a car upside down and crawl out. The bag goes with you. Okay. Um, and lucky for you, you put, uh, you know, you, you did prepare for worst case, uh, Next thing you know, the, the pilot says, everybody brace for impact, okay? So you do brace, and now the plane uh, is in the side of a mountain, okay? You just kind of, all of it, you know, you know how, the, if you've been in any kind of aircraft, I usually relate it to helicopters, which are uh, nicknamed whistling shit cans of death in the military. Um, then you know this very well, that one minute you can be in the air, and the next minute basically hitting the deck. Um, so... Uh, you brace. Now you're sitting on the side of a mountain. You're you're still conscious and you're breathing, which is great. Do you a uh, get the hell away from the plane as quickly as possible, or b uh, stay and assess and look around for a bit? 
uh, stay away, assess from afar, and then and <laughs> yeah. then and then move back in. Uh, gotcha. You know, yeah. Again, I, yeah. I've I've moved around in helicopters too, and uh, I had the I, I saw one of them crash once. Uh, one of our guys uh, you know, hit a line, and it was pretty traumatic. Um, yeah. Uh, you have to create you have to create space between you and whatever just happened so you can assess uh, and Got assessments it. are better done from afar instead of with, from within you know yeah good answer so a get the hell away from the plane as quickly as possible and uh, so you need to get away just like you hit I mean it's a, it's an aircraft there's fuel you don't know what's going to happen next smoke fire um, you know thirty percent of the people who survive a plane crash end up dying. Uh, because of the the smoke, fire, fuel inhalation. So if you're conscious and you crash land, get away from it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, uh, so, a, a little a, a little side note. Uh, yeah. And uh, there there is a way to remove seat belts on a lot of commercial aircrafts. Uh, that's just just in the back of them. Some of them have a little clasp that attaches the seat belt to the uh, seat itself. Oh yeah. So if, if so, if you never realize that, uh, when the flight attendants are actually showing you how to put the seatbelt on, mm -hmm. look at the bottom part of the strap they're using. It's actually they actually took it from one of the chairs there, and it's a it's a little clip that you can actually take off. If you're struggling with the uh, with the seatbelt, you can unclip it from the side as well. So just a little extra for people that have never thought yeah, uh, I like thought about that. Also, yeah, it's a so good. It's the anchor point. Yeah. yeah, it's also a good flail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, improvised weapons. Um, okay, so you get about 250 feet away, and then you feel uh, you feel some pain. You look down and realize that you have a, a broken right arm. It's a compound fracture, and it's bleeding pretty bad. So do you, A, go back to the wreckage for supplies, or B, address the injury and the bleeding right then and there? I'll address the bleeding and the injury right there and there. That's what's going to kill me the fastest. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm somewhere cold, that's going to lead into hypothermia the quickest. So I'll focus on that bleed. Uh, as far as what I'm going to have on my person where the bleed is, I mean, that's going to tell me where I'm going to have to apply a tourniquet or pack or just apply direct digital pressure. I don't know what that wound's going to be, but I think my first priority is going to stop myself from losing body heat and, and fluid, basically. So... Yep. Uh, I'll, attend, I'll, I'll attend to the, uh, I'll tend to the wound. I'll stop the bleed if I can. Uh, I'll move my way up my arm and then I'll do a full blood sweep on myself because if I have a hole in my arm, I might be ignoring something else. that might be also pretty, uh, pretty bad on me. Yeah. threatening. So I'll do a blood sweep on myself if I can. Um, I'll try and stabilize that arm as best as I can. And uh, if I am going to be more of a liability than a help in that environment, I'll probably sit that one out or go back into seeing if I can actually do anything for anybody else. Okay. What, well, that's a great ending because that's uh, exactly where we're going. All right. You ready? <laughs> so you address the wound and the next thing you know, you hear someone calling for help. It's almost as if you read this scenario ahead of time or something. I think you've been hacking my computer. All right. Do you, A, run back to the crash site to help a survivor? B, call back to them, try to communicate and get more information like where are they or are they hurt? Uh, you know, if, 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 if the person is responsive, awesome, you know. Uh, I, I think that, I think that, that I've experienced in, in real life is, 
having somebody responsive and then having them fade into unresponsiveness and then coming back, you know, blood loss does that to people. You shoot somebody in the leg, they'll go in and out a few times. That's, it's a pretty fucking horrible shit, uh, thing to see. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd probably yell out to get orientation and not walk into a straight line into whatever's happening. I'd probably kind of fan out a little bit so I, so I can get a better angle, a visual angle on what the situation of the person is in first before I rush or run in to do anything. You know, what yeah. if he's, what if they're next to a fuel source? What if they are currently uh, almost uh, about to be consumed by fire and I'm taking my time trying to angle shit? Um, what will happen when I get there? Do I have the means to get them out of what they're in, right? Do I have something to cut open that seat belt? Do I have something to, um, do I have something to drag them from their position and put them into a safer position? Uh, am I going to take off my jacket, limiting my temperature? You know, like what, 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 yeah. what do I have to work with? Uh, right. A lot of, a lot of the things you, I, I think a lot of the things that would happen as far as self-assessment, and I didn't, I didn't kind of mention, as I always tell this to people, once, if, if, if you get, if you get clocked, if you get shot, whatever happens, uh, and you find yourself in a moment to self-assess, what is wrong with me? What's bleeding? What, uh, what's injured? You know, what do I have with me? Do I have my belt? You know, I carry, I usually carry an old, to the early 2000s rigor riggers belt by t3 tactical that i bought when i was in coronado it's so it's like a it's like a it's a relic of it's a relic of a it's a relic of like a tactical uh, it's, it's tactical vintage now yeah uh, but that but that thing can be used to drag somebody uh clear away from a car or if uh, in the yeah. scenario playing so i take it i, I take kind of count, uh, that into account if i can't have that i'll try and uh, manufacture something out of the seat belt to drag that person away Main thing is, if I'm going to do something for that person, it's not going to be in the middle of a crash site. So my my whole motivation is going to be first, am I safe trying to extract this person from an unsafe situation? Mm -hmm. So assessment. And assessment yeah. is, isn't done when you're there. Assessment is done while you're getting there. Uh, and if you can do something uh, to extract that person, what do you have with you that's going to work for that? Or are you going to improvise when you get there? You know, picking up a rock as you go, uh, picking up a piece of seatbelt as you go, uh, knowing that you have Kevlar cordage on around your neck or hidden somewhere that you can cut the uh, seatbelt with. Uh, all these things are kind of coming into play as you're assessing, you know, what do I have with me? Uh, and then you finally get to that person, you're not going to treat anything there. Your whole concept or, or whole motivation there is to extract the person. So you drag them away. You drag them away. Um, that's when... If you want to do anything as a responder, I guess that's when you would kind of start, start figuring that out. Uh, but right. everything away from that crash site, you know, if yeah, you get if somebody gets shot in a car, drag them away from the car because cars are magnets for bullets. Uh, if you if somebody if if something happened in a, a car accident somewhere, you don't know a mechanic, you don't know if it's going to blow up, you don't know if the guy was carrying a gas tank in the back of his car. Extract yourself, create space, you know. Yeah, it's. I like it. Yeah, you're hitting all you're hitting all the points that we're probably going to hit here in a couple minutes, but uh, we're going to walk you through it. All right. So assess the situation from a safe distance is definitely the best move here. You're gathering intelligence so you can uh, approach it properly. The biggest thing, like you pointed out, is keeping yourself safe um, and then uh, making sure you're staying safe all the way through. So 
you don't want to just rush into it. Um, once you've done this, you, uh, you head to the scene and you find this passenger. Uh, their legs are penned. Okay? They do not appear to have any other injuries. They are just complaining about their legs. Uh, this person is in the wreckage, uh, and it's starting to smoke. Do you A, just pull them out, or B, leave them in place for the moment? Uh, uh, yeah, because you don't so, know the future of this scenario. Yeah, so. No, so I don't know the future <laughs> of the scenario. So if she's struggling breathing, if she's struggling to breathe because of what's happening there, that probably means that I'm going to have a T-shirt over my face with some snow in it already to try and get to try and make myself be able to breathe in that scenario. Uh, no, she does. It's just her legs. She doesn't oh, have any she, other. No there's other no issues. smoke. Smoke going on. Smoke going on. There's a little bit of smoke, but it's not affecting oh. her. She's just pinned okay. And she's so complaining about her legs. Yeah. If she's pinned and she's complaining about her legs, it might be a, there might be a femoral fracture, which could lead. There might be bone shattering as well, so that could lead into some internal bleeding of the femoral. So. I'd probably have to assess that specifically, but I've had to cut things open to kind of uh, cut clothes off and shit like that. I can't do it in that space again. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look around for some sort of leverage device to try and split whatever's going on between her legs and and, and uh, whatever's keeping them trapped in. Uh, but my main focus again is extracting that person from that clusterfuck of a place they're in. If there's smoke yeah. going on. If her legs are, are are crushed and you know bones get yeah, jagged when they break, so that could lead into some internal bleeding that could be life threatening. Um, so my whole again, my whole intention would be to extract her. Uh, so by mechanical means, if possible. If not, I'll figure out a way. Cutting her legs off is not going to be a, in any part of the solution <laughs> that I could see there. Well, field amputations, however fun, probably not recommended. Um, so yeah, a pulling them out or B leave them in place for now. I'm kind of gathering you're going more with B because you're talking about gathering more stuff in order to pull this off. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. If, if 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 I if I need something mechanical, I'm gonna have to gather stuff to yeah. do it mechanically. Uh, and if I can get them out without that, again, my whole point purpose is to extract them from that. Yeah. So you know, while it's commonly said that you know moving someone who's been in a wreck can cause further damage to them, in this situation. With the smoke, you know, billowing, and you don't know much. Uh, you don't have much of a choice on how to get them out. Um, you're, you start asking yourself questions like, you know, do you want them to burn to death? No. Uh, the hypothermia. Hypothermia. Yeah. Uh, if he's if she's experiencing blood loss internally, hypothermia. Uh, if, uh, if the smoke inhalation is going to be an issue, I don't know if anything else happened. You know, she might have impacted her chest on the way down. So. It might go into uh, something pulmonary, might be a collapsed lung, you know. Yeah. But I won't be able to tell any of that unless I put her into a, into a, a flat position on the ground. And I can assess her. It's mm -hmm. not going to be that's not going to be in a chair, I think. Yeah, that's good. You get so well, um, you get the injured person back to where uh, you originally fled to. OK, so you, you, you pull them out to uh, approximately 250 feet away. And then looking back towards the crash, you see the pilot. Okay, the pilot is pinned and unresponsive, and the smoke is getting thicker. The flames are beginning to, you know, grow rapid. Um, so, do you a go back and try and pull the pilot out, or b gather any supplies you can uh, before going into the flames? And you kind of already hit on this when you were talking it out earlier. Yeah, I mean, going going into the flames and exposing myself to just killing myself trying to save an unresponsive unknown person 
it's uh, and, and this is legit you know everybody tough, wants yeah. legit everybody wants to envision themselves as uh the guys freeing uh jews from the concentration camps and nobody wants to envision themselves as a guy being a guard at a at a, at a nazi concentration camp basically we don't want to think the worst of ourselves or we don't want to envision the worst of ourselves and if you've ever actually done anything and if you ever actually served in a capacity where combat is a situation or where people get harmed then you gotta have you, ha you gotta do some arithmetic you gotta do some math uh you gotta do some risk assessment and nobody it, 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 no, uh, everybody's not going to get out of it alive. Uh, everybody's not going to be okay. Uh, sometimes you're going to have to make a hard choice. And in this regard, I'm not a firefighter. I don't have uh, fire retardant equipment. I'm not going to be there making myself a pine suit to not burn my arms. Uh, I don't carry around. I don't carry. I, I don't carry Nomex. Uh, a Nomex suit with me. So I mean, I there's. Uh, if he's unresponsive and he's being consumed by flames and I have somebody that is responsive that I can deal with over here, uh, all of us are going to die if I burn to burn alive in that uh, fire trying to extract this person. So, right. Yep. You got it right, man. You got to get supplies and you kind of got to continue assessing, uh, finding out you, you already talked out most of what the points we we're making is, you know, the plane is. It's going to be fully engulfed in probably 30 seconds or less. I mean, once the fire starts, it's it's hard to get ahead of that. Uh, time time is not on your side with this one. Um, there's a difference between one dead and three dead, right? Yeah. And uh, what you pointed out. Uh, focus on gathering insulation. Focus on gathering uh, calories, if, if there's any calories there. Focus on salvaging anything related to, uh, I don't know, cordage of... Yeah. Uh, fire making if, if you see exposed fuel somewhere just be careful with but you know maybe yeah, you got it. Some shelter of shelter fire and food i mean yeah yeah you, you might be in this for the long haul and that wreck is all you got is a supply chain you know yeah um, um, the calories part is pretty interesting and it's uh yeah uh i used to we used to make snipe uh i think uh, americans call it sniper slurry that's basically peanut butter granola and honey melted in a pot and just put into a bag and that, that was our we would make our own you know, yeah, food rations kinda, yeah. and put some uh, instant coffee in there and we just create a good meal pop for it. Uh, carry around, carrying around calories with you. is like, you know, it's not, it doesn't look cool in your spread out, EDC spread out, but if you're moving <laughs> around in a plane and crashing in the forest, it might, might be a, a Snickers a bar you. goes a long ways. <laughs> yeah. Snickers bar. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you've never had a Snickers bar after three days of not eating, yeah, that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good flavor. Yeah. You know, it's a pretty good um, flavor. I remember back in the day, I was reading the comparison between Power Bars and Snickers Bars, and they broke them down like nutrient wise, and they're pretty much match for matches. I was like, oh, I'd rather do the Snickers Bar than it tastes better than a Power Bar. Um, okay, so getting back to the scenario, um, so you get some supplies, you get back to the person that you saved, and now do you a uh, start to search for water or start a fire? Uh, I think uh, in that scenario, the cold is going to kill you more than dehydration. Yeah. Uh, so I will You're focus on it. insulation, uh, securing, uh, trying to keep her body out of the ground. So that's going to be a major source of uh, body heat leaching. Yep. So I'll figure out a way to kind of uh, isolate her from that. Also myself, figure out how to just protect myself from the weather. Uh, in her case, internal bleeding and hypothermia is what's going to be at the top of the priorities to kind of deal with. So right. 
So I'll I'll focus on shelter and I'll focus on fire making not only for heat but also for signaling. Uh, I want to keep something you know, lit as far as uh, as far as people being able to see us from the sky. Yeah, good. Yeah, you're hitting all of it. Um, yeah, it's getting colder by the minute. This person could go into shock or at any moment. So fire, obviously, keeping them warm is going to be a good thing. This is also a good way to try and signal for help, which you already mentioned. And uh, so now it's, you know, fast forward a little bit. It's been about two days and uh, still no rescuers have showed up. Um, luckily, in the supplies you gathered, um, before it burned, you were able to grab a map. Uh, the map shows a river about one mile to the west and uh, a road about 10 miles to the north. So do you, A, head to the road 10 miles away or head to the river one mile away? Uh, I'd, uh, so, you know, if I'm up there, I can imagine. And her injuries, like, keep in mind her injuries. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, first off, I don't know if I'm going to be able to move her or drag her. I can improvise some sort of weird... Mm-hmm. You know, Jim, J- Jimmy rig thing that I can drag her from one point to another. It's 10 miles, mountainous terrain. Yeah, I'm not, I think it's you're not, going the right direction here. It's not, it's not doable to get to that road. Uh, I, I'm going to have to leave her if I get to that road. And by the time I make it back, that might be a thing. Uh, if I go to the water source, I might, uh, you know, water sources usually lead to places where are inhabited around those water sources. It's also a water source. Water's pretty great to have. Uh, not, not a pretty good place to start fires though. So not a pretty good place to conserve fire. I'm not going to get into the water. Um, I'd probably do my math and, uh, I'd probably take it closer to the river. Okay. Uh, good answer. Head to the river. The river is uh, closer, obviously, uh, for one, it will, uh, it's, it's water, um, like you already hit on, um, and rivers tend to have populations nearby at some point, um, you are, uh, you're now over an hour into your journey and you hear a helicopter overhead. Um, you are in dense vegetation though. Damn it. So there's overhead canopy. So last question, do you A, rush and try and find a clearing or B, try to start a fire? Uh, I mean, what do I, if I'm, if I'm in the scenario, usually carry around a bunch of big lighters so I might be able to start a fire. A lot of yeah. the stuff that I would, a lot of the stuff that I would use to start a fire would, would be already gathered with me in some sort of bag. I'd probably find whatever high visibility material that I could find in the environment. I usually carry around a, bla- a red handkerchief with me, and specifically for signaling. Uh, yeah. So I'd look for anything around me that is green to produce the most amount of smoke that I can muster. So that's it. I'd Light probably the gr- forest on fire. I agree. Li- light the fucking forest on fire uh yeah. but if you can't light the whole if, if the if, if you can't light the whole forest on fire uh light green stuff on fire that'll produce a lot of smoke and it's a pretty good visual uh, indicator to somebody uh for somebody that some something is down there yeah uh and if you can find a clearing before you see the helicopter you you would already have laid out some sort of sign or signal that yeah you know, you're in trouble yeah, I think some people would be listening going, yeah, I'm going to go run to the clearing. But, you know, that's that's a split second that you have to be seen, which probably won't happen at roughly 90 miles per hour while the helicopter's passing over. Yeah. Whereas a fire, a fire can be seen from miles away. Even if the helicopter flies by, it may see you miles away uh, when it turns around, looks back or looks around. And a plus others, right? Yeah. Trying to get the attention of other people as well, not just one, but many. 
as you're moving from the crash site to the river, I'd probably put a bunch of arrows on the way or at least some sort of uh, signaling or message yeah, about where I go. went. And if I see anything high visibility again in the wreckage, I'm going to start tying that shit off the branches as I go, just to, yeah. just to create a way for me to get back to the crash site for orientation if I have to, or for people from the crash site to find me where I am. It's good stuff, Ed. You got 10 for 10. Good job. So Aaron Brockovich was eight for 10. So you crushed her. You crushed her, Ed. All right. Good job. Um, Great answers. You put a ton of information into your answers, which is just a beautiful thing because once again, this is all about giving the listeners an entertaining way to keep survival and safety at the forefront of their mind. So I appreciate all your experience, your knowledge, your input. Where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more? Uh, www.edsmanifesto.com or follow me on Instagram at uh, edsmanifesto.com. And if people want uh, to keep uh, up to date as far as what's going on in Mexico, cartel-wise, crime-wise, uh, we part we're, we're partnering with a uh, news source uh, uh, online called Demoler. Uh, best hmm. uh, best information coming out of Mexico from Demoler. So. Uh, at all these three uh, three places you can find us and more information about what we do. Great stuff, dude. So there you go. Ed's manifesto is pretty much how you find him. He's all over the internet. He's been there, done that for a little while, and he is good at constantly posting on his IG feed. I know because I follow. And uh, like I always say, um, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And Ed, thank you for coming on the show, buddy. Thank you. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.